Welcome to the Alchemy of Business Show with your host, Steve Rogers. The Alchemy of Business Show is a podcast that mixes practical, actionable business solutions with soulful insights for anyone seeking deeper meaning in their lives and greater success in their work. Steve will be featuring purpose-driven leaders from all walks of life and getting insight into their journeys from failures to triumphs. So tune in to transition, transform, and evolve in every dimension of your business and life. And now your host of the Alchemy of Business show, Steve Rogers. Hello, and thank you for listening in or viewing. However you got here, whether on YouTube or E360 TV, maybe you're on iTunes or Spotify, but however you got here, I am grateful that you are here on the Alchemy of Business show. We are here always talking about making wiser decisions creating greater profits in your life and, and your work, but also finding higher purpose in what you do and who you are and how you show up in the world. And we have a phenomenal guest today who does that at a very high level, and he's been helping people do that at a very deep and wide level globally for many years. Uh, we have Dr. Mark Golston on today. He is an executive coach, advisor, speaker. He's a psychiatrist, communicator, and an author. He's also a great guy with a great sense of humor, and you will enjoy him just a few minutes having him learning from his wisdom. But I met him actually through the Marshall Goldsmith 100 Coaches member group that he's also a member of. Uh, this is a group that has CEOs and managing directors and many people globally throughout the world that are invited in to uh, share their knowledge within this leadership group. Originally, uh, Dr. Mark uh, was a UCLA professor of psychiatry for over 25 years, and he's also a former FBI and police hostage negotiator trainer. Now, who can say that? We're going to really find out more about that. He's also, um, he's forged his way in a, a, a real-life high-stakes situations where he's been under high-pressure life-and-death situations that he's helped people maneuver through. He's also an author of over nine books with uh, one of his books that you'll see from his background, Just Listen, Why, Why Cope When You Can Heal, Trauma to Triumph. Uh, but he's got uh, the Wake Up, My Wake Up Call that he does his own podcast show. So he's a host, not only being a guest on my show. Uh, and he also is uh, in the out of our minds in your, in our, wait a minute, it's out of our minds in your own space on Twitter, uh, which is a, a mashup of creatives and thinkers. So what Mark's gift is, is many, but he's really phenomenal about bringing people together, connecting people at an intellectual, emotional, and spiritual way. And he is just a phenomenal man. So I'm so glad to have him on the show today. So let's invite Mr. Mark Golston to say hello. You know, one of the Nice things about people saying such wonderful things about you, Steve, is it gives you something to live up to. <laughs> well, and I know you will, and I know you do. <laughs> so I was lucky enough to be on your show, and I and I get to see you living up to it because I uh, follow you on your work, and also you're on a uh, WhatsApp feed that I'm on with all the under 100 coaches, and you're constantly bringing value of advice, wisdom, articles, empathy, and suggestions. So you, you do that every day. So you are showing up and doing that. So uh, thanks again for being on the show. So so Dr. Mark, Mr. Gold, so I'm going to call you Mark throughout the show. So if that's uh, so the, the listeners on this process, but I know you've, you've earned your doctorate and, and earned that very well. So I don't want to disregard that by any means, but for the sake of ease. So Mark, in this, in this journey that you've had, uh, you've had a very wonderful life and a lot of challenges and ups and downs as we all have. But you've maintained this this smiley, positive, happy attitude throughout it uh, that I uh, that I always receive from you when I engage with you or I see that you interact. So I want to learn more about that on, on on yourself. How is that inner DNA Intel chip that you seem to have this uh, this uh, this light uh, or this um, sense of lightness, but depth in in a in a way that is engaging for people? So I don't know how you define that for yourself. But this 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 personality that you have that seems so engaging for others, where does that stem from? Do you think? Well, um, I'm I'm blessed to have my wife be the more suspicious part of the two of us. So my <laughs> mantra, my no, literally, my mantra into life is I I assume innocence and goodwill wherever I am, and. Uh, and when, and by the way, when someone says something that seems to upset me or sounds like bad will, I never get angry. I get confused. So I let ah. them say whatever they're going to say. And then I'm puzzled. And I say, what was that about? Or where did that come from? Uh, or I'll be quick to own up and, 
say, what is it that I did or failed to do or said or failed to say that caused that um, uh, so I can take full responsibility for it? And, and I'll, I'll share an interesting story with you, if I might, because people yeah, remember please. Uh, five of my books, I don't know if I can say this now, but five of my nine books are bestsellers in Russia. And by the way, I love the Russian people because the Russian people are just like you and me. I don't want to get into politics. I don't want to get into wars. I don't want to get into anything like that. And But here's an anecdote. I, I was speaking to 500 uh, Russian business people. And uh, and I gave them this exercise. And if you're listening in, this is a great exercise to do with audiences if you want to increase engagement. So picture 500 are looking at me and I say, I want you to partner with the person next to you and talk about something really exciting that you're looking forward to. And then they did that. And I said, how did that feel? And they said, that felt great. And I said, really, I'm going to try something else. I want you to go back to your partner and each of you talk about something you're really embarrassed about. And I'll share with you what I felt excited about is I, I get to be here in front of all of you in Moscow teaching you something that I'm passionate about, which is listening. And, and then I said, something I'm embarrassed about is I'm a name dropper. And mm. I've already done it six times since I've been speaking to you. And some, <laughs> some people say, Mark, cut yourself a break because at least you know the people who, whose names you're dropping. Most people will name drop. They don't even know them. And, <laughs> and so what happened is they did the first exercise and then they did the second one. And I said, how did that feel? And they said, that felt better. And I said, that's because when you shared something you're embarrassed about to someone who's not judging you, you connected, you were vulnerable, you felt closer, and you got a break from feeling isolated. And what happened, and then I had some people call out, what, uh, what is it you felt great about? And what is it you felt embarrassed about. And there was a fellow in the front row. So there's 500 people behind him and there's a fellow in the front row and he shares something that he's ashamed of. And he says, I'm still embarrassed about it. So picture, <laughs> I'm looking at the audience and this guy is opening up to me and there's 500 behind him and he's looking at me. And I thought, I can't leave him hanging alone. So here's where I, I zoom back to what you originally asked me. I said, I'm going to share something that I've never shared in public. And I'm embarrassed about it. And I'm ashamed about it. And then I wandered around. And I said, and I looked at them very spontaneously. I say, I don't know if I can do this. And they're all looking at me. And I said, I think I have to do it now that I've told you. And then literally, Steve, I paused. I looked at them. I opened my arms wide. And I said, I think I'm with friends. Uh. And then I shared this thing and I'll just share it because your listeners want to know. And I shared something in which my wife had called me when I was in the middle of a session. Uh, and I told her sometimes I'm in life and death things. Don't call me. Right. And called me. And there was this couple looking at me and they were angry that I was taking up some of their time. Uh, and she and my wife said, don't be angry at me. And I said, it's okay. And I was a little bit angry. <laughs> she said, don't be angry. I said, okay. And this couple's looking at me and she said, I'm lying on the bathroom floor and I can't move. Oh, wow. That's exactly right. Oh, wow. Oh, man. And, I, and so I listen, I go, what? Your heart and stops. Said, oh, yeah. That's right. So she told me and I said, okay, uh, I'll be there. I'm heading home. And I just dismissed the couple. But when I got home, I thought to myself, what is wrong with you? She's afraid to call you. She's lying on the bathroom floor, mm. you know, and uh, and I looked in the bathroom mirror and uh, I just put water in my face and I said, what is wrong with you? And so I shared that with the audience and I got a standing ovation. <laughs> oh, wow. Because of your self-introflection there, of, of assessing yourself and being so vulnerable on that many, in front of that many people. Yeah. And so I think that's a good way to step into the world. Uh, if I, you assume goodwill and innocence, uh, that said, by the way, I also have a mantra, identify and stop evil at the earliest opportunity uh, and either protect people from it or get away from it. 
So it's mm. not it's not a total Pollyanna approach. If I identify someone who's mean or hurtful to other people, I'm going to step in and stop them. Mm. And that's powerful. And so you've got this outlook because I I always see that you have this demeanor of being this approachable nice, uh, jovial kind of guy. But also when I look at your bio and your work that you do, I mean, you have been a hostage negotiator, which I want to talk about. You've been a psychiatrist, which I'm sure has helped people in some really intense situations and conversations. You have been in some life or death situations. So having this ability in yourself to be that strategic where you can uh, vet out evil and stay away from it, prevent it or stop it from happening in your own life or those for others, and then being empathetic, how, as a psychiatrist, uh, did you balance that when you were assessing people that were coming to you for help if they were both of those things in the, in, the, in the scenario where you were seeing these things of the duality of humanity? You probably got to see humanity at levels that some of us don't see in an intimate level because people are sitting across from you telling you their most inner fears, concerns, uh, confessions almost. So how did you continue to stay optimistic and Pollyanna in a positive way, but yet realistic in life when you were dealing with so many of these, in some cases, horrific type things or challenging things? Well, I'll share something with you because uh, I'm going to do an experiment with you. So don't get nervous because trust me on this, Steve, it's going to go well. Okay. So, <laughs> so the last time I was in Russia a couple of years ago, I, I headlined with a Nobel Prize winner named Daniel Kahneman. He wrote Thinking Fast and Slow. And uh, and I had five best-selling books, and he just had a Nobel Prize, so that's why they had me there. But <laughs> what I was doing there uh, in Russia is I wanted to teach them, and this is what I'm now trying to teach the world, and I'm going to teach it to you. So wish me luck on this, because okay. you, because it's I'm going to try to change the AM mindset in your brain, the transactional mindset, the successful business person to FM. Okay. So what I realized, and this is what I did, is that when people are listening to you, they're always listening for something underneath they're listening to you. And if you can be curious about what they're listening for, and you get it right without their telling you, they lean towards you. So I'm going to try that with you. So I hope it works out. So Okay. So you've been listening to me. Yes. You've been a great host. You're checking all the boxes. Hopefully, I know my story was kind of long-winded. I'll try and clean that up, the first one, but I thought it was a decent story. And it was. But you're asking <laughs> questions. You're checking boxes. You want to cover certain things. So you're listening to me. But if I tune in what you're listening for, I think what you're listening for and you haven't told me this, but what you're listening for is you want to honor the trust and confidence that your listeners and viewers have in you. And you don't want to waste their time. And what you're listening for is practical wisdom that they can use immediately to make their life better. Because if you can deliver that to them, you've honor their trust and confidence. You're also probably or maybe wanting to listen for people you need to protect them for. So it may be that every now and then you'll get someone who's a best-selling author, but he's a stiff. <laughs> I mean, he's awful. He's pontificating. He's arrogant. And you're thinking to yourself, I can't post this. I, I can't do this to my listeners. I'll have to find out some way to sort of explain why we couldn't use it. So am I getting it at all that you're listening for a way to honor trust and confidence and by giving them value that's practical that they can use today? Yes, absolutely. And that is why you are a psychiatrist. I'm not even on your couch and you're pulling that out. That's exactly right. I I, I love to honor uh, stuff that I, not stuff, I love to honor specific things that can help others through me learning it myself and hearing it. And yes, the listeners or viewers, thank, taking things from people that I respect 
that I think are admirable, that I think are doing good work in the world, that I think are worth emulating in their paths of what they do that can do good in the world. So I would say that that was an accurate assessment of what you said. Yes. Well, good. Well, I'm I'm, I'm glad. And, and it should have calmed down the RPMs in your rapid brain there, Steve. I was definitely slowing down my, my pace because it goes very quickly normally. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. so so let's let's hope that we both deliver that uh, during the remainder of the show. Well, thank you. Well, in this segment, we have about uh, three or more minutes, uh, two or three more minutes left in this segment. Then we've got more segments to go. So I'm sure that we are and we will. Let me ask you, uh, and we're going to come back and talk more about this, but how did you get on the path of even becoming uh, uh, interested in psychology uh, and becoming a psychiatrist? And how did that start when you were a young man going from high school to college and say, I know what I want to be when I grow up? How did that first come about? Well, I really didn't know it. And we'll probably have to continue this uh, after the break. But what happened to me is, uh, and one of my greatest personal accomplishments is I dropped out of medical school twice and finished. And I dropped out twice because I think I had untreated depression. And the Mm. second time I dropped out, they wanted to kick me out because they were losing money. Mm. But what happened is the dean of students who I was sent to, uh, uh, to find out that uh, if I became self-destructive after they were going to tell me we're kicking you out. When I met with him, the Dean of Students saw something in me that I didn't see because I was depressed. And he said to me, you know, Mark, uh, you didn't mess up. You're passing everything, but you are messed up. But if you got unmessed up, I think this school would be glad they gave you a second chance. So they were trying to kick me out the second time because they were trying to cut their losses. Wow. and I said, That's what? Amazing. I can't imagine them saying to uh, this now famous psychiatrist, Mark, you are, if you could get unmessed up, we think you could be someone. So we're going to stop on that note. We're going to come back and carry on this story because we're at the break time. But please come back and hear how a FBI hostage negotiator, a top psychiatrist, a well-versed author was told that he uh, was messed up and needed to get unmessed up. So come back and hear after the break how Mark succeeded in doing that and more. Thank you for listening in on the Alchemy of Business show. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Alchemy of Business show. We are here with Dr. Mark Golston, and we are talking about his journey and his path. He was giving us some great stories about empathy, vulnerability, engaging people and getting to the truth of the matter when people are listening for what they're really listening for. But what I was listening for as we were going from the segment is Mark was starting to tell us about his journey, about how he even got to become the desire to be a a psychiatrist uh, and what were some of the hurdles he had getting there, but what even started with that. So Mark, you were telling us a story that you were in college and that you you dropped out uh, a couple times and then finished. And you had someone who was uh, saying to you, Mark, uh, we think you're you are a bit messed up. But if you got unmessed up, we think you have something there. So let's pick up where we left off there. OK, so I was in I was in medical school and I took a, and I dropped out twice, but finish. And the second time when I dropped out and I wasn't flunking out, but I think I had untreated depression. I met with the dean of the school who cared about money and I was obviously not a great business bet. So. Uh, Uh, So I met with him, and then he sent me to the dean of students who cared about students. And I guess the dean of the school was worried, you know, how would I take it when I found out that I was being kicked up? And when the dean of students told me um, uh, that the the dean of the school had sent him a letter saying that I'm being asked to withdraw, I, I said to the dean of students, what does that mean? And he said, you've been kicked out. And then what happened is I cratered and and I I'm not very religious, but I think a miracle happened because when he said that I started touching my cheeks because it felt like I was bleeding and I started touching my cheekbones and and looking at my fingers because I felt like I was bleeding from my eyes. Wow. But it was tears. Oh, Uh, okay. And uh, and then that's when he said to me, so imagine you're depressed. You don't know what if you have a future. Uh, you're probably cratering at a low point. And he said, Mark, uh, you didn't mess up because you're passing everything, but you are messed up. But if you became unmessed up, um, uh, I think the school would be glad they gave you a second chance. 
Huh? And, and how did how did you receive that that those words when you got them? Did it make you feel more depressed, or did it give you a sense of encouragement in that moment if you were sitting back uh, thinking about that? No, what happened is I think I fell apart, oh, but okay. his passionate compassion—it's like he reached underneath my falling apart, and he said, "He said, Mark, um, you know, uh, even if you don't become a doctor." Even if you don't get unmessed up, even if you don't do anything with the rest of your life, I'd be proud to know you. Hmm. Wow, that's powerful. Because you have a streak of goodness and kindness in you that we don't grade in medical school. We should, but we don't. And you have no idea how much the world needs that. And you won't know it till you're 35, but you have to make it till you're 35. And you deserve to be on this planet. And you're going to let me help you. And he arranged an appeal. So what he had done is he saw a future for me that I didn't. He saw value in me that I didn't. Uh, and he went to bat against the medical school for me at his own risk. Mm. And so the combination, the trifecta of seeing a future for me, seeing value and standing up for me against a medical school that wanted to kick me out, it flipped the switch in me. So I took a year off. And during that year, I went and worked at a place called the Menninger Foundation, which was in Topeka, Kansas. It's now, I think, based in Houston. And I found a way to connect with schizophrenic farm boys. And I'm, I, I was raised in a suburb of Boston. <laughs> and then I finished that. Yeah. And I came back, finished med school, went to UCLA in psychiatry, and I just paid it forward. So with my suicidal patients, I saw goodness in them. I saw a future in them, and I went to bat for them. And it's as if I grabbed them by the nape of the neck and said, you're not going anywhere. Wow. Well, that's a powerful thing that for our listeners and us to remember. One person believing in you or seeing something that you don't quite see in that moment that is there because someone else is seeing it and you may not be because of your depression, your emotion, your vision. And for you to go on and do that, Mark, I'm sure that school is more than proud of you that you were a graduate. So you went on then to start your own practice in Los Angeles, which is where you live now. And how long did you run your psychiatry practice for? I would say for uh, 30 years or so. And then in that 30 years, I'm assuming you saw a lot of people. What did you, in that 30 years, if you had to sum up uh, like a soundbite or two, did you have a, or do you now from say 20 years ago toward now have a different view of the hum human condition than you had before you started practicing after you've heard all of these stories, these conflicts, these people, these families, what humans can do or not do to each other. Do you have a very different view of what you came into your practice as how you saw humanity versus what you have now? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, one of the things I'm working on is you may have heard of this thing called ayahuasca. Yes where mm -hmm. people go to uh, uh, other countries and they go on an ayahuasca journey. And so I'm working on figuring out what does ayahuasca do to our mind that we can do without having to use ayahuasca. And I think I've figured it out. So what I've learned is that when we're traumatized as children in all kinds of ways, we attach to ways to just survive the trauma but often those ways of attaching to survive the trauma uh, are, are counterproductive. And, but we hold on to them because we got to make it through the trauma. And so we hold on to them. We become binge eaters. We become uh, alcoholics. We, become, we do all these compulsive behaviors uh, because that's what we grabbed onto uh, to survive the trauma. But what happens is as we get older, those things don't work for us. And so what you really need is someone to go in there and break your attachment to those behaviors that helped you survive the trauma. And that's where I came up with the term surgical empathy. empathy. Yeah, surgical empathy. For We're going to have that in the show notes. But tell us more about that surgical empathy, please. Well, uh, 
there's a difference between, and I'm speaking a little bit medically, but there's a difference between an attachment and an adhesion. A surgical adhesion, and sometimes you have to go in surgically to cut the adhesions. Sometimes that's what happens after surgery. You know, someone goes in there and they fix something, but your body says, gee, something foreign is coming into the body. And the body reacts by developing these adhesions between organs. But those adhesions, which is the body's response to your going in with the surgery, uh, they can often block you. So I think what happens in trauma is people develop psychological adhesions that become these compulsive behaviors that are counterproductive. So surgical empathy is going in to uh, where they're stuck and, and, and you're eliminating the adhesion through empathy. So I'm going to share a very quick story, but this one I think you'll find uh, compelling. So I was seeing all these suicidal patients and there was one that was incredibly suicidal. She had made three attempts before I started seeing her. I was moonlighting at a hospital uh, once a month. Uh, and uh, on one month, there was a Monday where I saw Nancy and Nancy never made eye contact. She never looked at me. And I didn't think I was helping her except that she'd gone about six months and that was the longest she'd gone without a suicide attempt. And because I was sleep deprived, she's sitting in the room uh, across from me. And I look out in the room and it has turned to black and white. So I'm not seeing color. The room is black and white and I'm feeling cold. And I thought I was having a stroke or a seizure. So because I'm a psychiatrist and MD, I do a neurologic exam on myself. I'm tapping my elbow. I'm looking at my finger, seeing if I'm seeing double. And I said, I'm not having a stroke or seizure. Uh, I think I'm seeing the world through her eyes and mm. feeling what she's feeling. So because I was sleep deprived, this is what I said to her. Because I hadn't reached her in six months and she never made eye contact. And I said, Nancy, I didn't know it was so bad and I can't help you kill yourself. Wow. But if you do, I will still think well of you. Mm. I will miss you. And maybe I'll understand why you had to, to get out of the pain. And I thought, I just blew it. I just gave her permission to kill herself. And that was the first time she made eye contact with me. And she, uh, looked, and she looked at me. With her pain, yeah, wow. And I thought she was going to say, thank you for understanding. I'm overdue. And I said, what are you, what are you thinking? And she stared right at me like I'm staring at you. And she said, if you can really understand that I might have to kill myself to get out of the pain. Maybe I won't need to. And then she smiled. Wow. And then the color came back in the room. The coldness went away. And then I grabbed onto her eyes like I'm grabbing onto yours. And I said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm not going to give you treatments that you've had before that didn't work unless you ask me to try them. Would that be okay? And she looked at me and I grabbed onto her eyes like I'm grabbing onto yours. And, and she looked at me like, keep talking. Mm -hmm. and I said, and then I leaned into her eyes and I said, what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to find you wherever you are. And I'm going to keep you company there as long as it takes. Cause I don't want you to be alone there anymore. Would that be okay? And then she started, she smiled and she started to cry. And she said, I think I'd like that. Wow, that that talk about reaching out to humanity that needed a rope on the last going under the ocean, uh, you know, and to her to grab onto that for you to have the right rope there at the right time at the right moment to connect with that is powerful. Um, I want to come back and talk more about this surgical empathy and specifically on how this amazing thing of helping this woman find and attach to her own pain to find a reason then to maybe not have to kill herself. And I've always been, you know, not understanding of uh, suicide, but I have people that I know that have done it or close to doing it and that the pain is so great. That's the only way they see out. So if you or anybody else listening has ways to help have people get out 
or have a, a, an arm or a hand that can be reached out. That's what humanity is intended to do. So the surgical empathy, uh, and I know that you do this in bringing this into organizations and into businesses and to the, the world. It's not just with individuals. Having this ability to connect with others and surgical empathy, uh, whether people are narcissistic or whether people are just needing a hand or whatever it might be. So I want to come back and talk about um, how you do this type of work, because it evolved from, from this powerful work that you do one-on-one -on -one as a psychiatrist. You went on to write books. You've spoken in front of huge audiences around the world. And this FBI negotiation, my guess is these skills that you learned you had helped uh, stop somebody from either killing themselves or killing others in, in the FBI space when you had to be in that. So I want to come back and have the listeners hear some of your stories about how you went from helping Nancy to also then helping others as an FBI negotiator. So stay tuned on the Alchemy of Business show. We will be back with Dr. Mark Olson in just a moment. Thank you for listening in and for viewing. Welcome back to the Alchemy of Business show. We are here helping people figure out how to make wiser decisions, creating greater profits in their life and business, and focusing on higher purpose. And Dr. Mark Golston was talking about much of this in the last segment because talk about having no more higher purpose and helping another human being have something to live for and to have helped be the person that helped be the steps to save their life. I would say that's pretty high purpose. So Mark, uh, I want to dig further on that practice of when you realize that you've got that connectivity to help Nancy as one of your patients or many others, how did this work lead for you then to realize that there was more people that needed to hear about this than just potentially in your office in Los Angeles as a patient? How did you go on to start writing your first book? And where did that, uh, that knowledge you have, how did you adapt that from uh, helping someone across the table or across the couch area of I mean, your office into translating that into book and now many books uh, of your, your, your experiences? So can we talk about, I know sometimes like talking about your kids, which one might be your, your favorite kid, but I know you have nine books and five bestsellers. Which of these books were the first and what are some of the things people can take away from some of your books and, and some golden nuggets here? Well, my very first book is called Get Out of Your Own Way. It's in 15 languages, just listens in 28 languages. And there's actually a Himalaya Learning audio course called Defeat, uh, Defeating Self-Defeat. And if you go to Himalaya.com forward slash defeat, you can actually hear the audio course for free if you subscribe for a certain amount of time. So that's kind of my baby, uh, Get Out of Your Own Way. But just listen is probably my favorite because I, I wrote it because when I look out at the world, the world's not listening to each other. And something we talked about in the last segment was how I got through to Nancy. But I want to give your listeners something uh, that they can use today. And I'm even hoping it might save a life or two. And there's four prompts. Let's say you're worried about someone who's in a dark place. And because of the pandemic, there's a lot of people who are in a dark place. We read about the stress, the depression, the anxiety. It's off the charts. So here are four prompts that you can use with someone you're worried about, especially if it's a teenager, because they're having a rough time. Yes. Here the four prompts, and you should do this while you're doing an activity with them, because teenagers do not like heart-to-heart -heart talks where you're face-to-face. -face. So do it while you're driving, or you're doing the dishes, or you're running an errand. And here are the four prompts. And you and you start off by by saying to them, you know, a lot of us parents are worried about our kids, and I'm I'm one of them. And can I just ask you a few things? So hopefully that will cause them to say, okay, mom, okay, dad, you know, you, you want to give them a little, a, a little uh, warm up or warning. Right. And the first prompt is uh, at its worst, at its worst, how awful are you capable of feeling about your life or yourself? And they're going to go, what? Yeah. You know, I'm worried about you at its worst. How awful are you capable of feeling about your life or yourself? And if you're fortunate, they'll say pretty awful. A little surgical empathy is pretty awful or very awful. Okay, mom. Okay, dad. Very, very awful. And the second prompt, and when you're feeling that, how alone do you feel? Very alone. Very alone or all alone? Okay, mom. Okay. Okay, dad. All alone. The third prompt Take me to the last time you felt it. And they're going to go, what? 
or they might go WTF. Mm -hmm. So yeah, take me to the last time you felt it. Was it 2.30 in the morning a few days ago? We heard you walking around in your room. Because what happens is when they can describe something so clearly that you can see it with your eyes, they refeel it. But when they refeel it, they're not alone. So they'll talk about, yeah, I couldn't get back to sleep. And I had a test and I was all stressed out. Then what happened? Well, I, I, I punched the pillow and I felt like kicking the wall. Then what happened? I, I just I started pulling at my hair. I started looking for some of your sleeping pills. Then what happened? I didn't know what I was going to do. And then the sun rose. And then the fourth prompt is, um, I have a favor to ask you. And you look them straight in the eye and you say, whenever you're feeling that, or even on your way to feeling that way, I want you to do whatever it takes to get my undivided attention or your mom's undivided attention or your dad's undivided attention. Because we're busy, we got tons of things in our mind, but there is nothing more important to either of us than helping you to feel less alone when you're feeling that awful. Hmm. You, got, you got that? That is so, so valuable and powerful. As, as you're saying that, I was literally just watching one of those Dateline shows the other night as I was flipping through a late night TV. And I thought, I'm just going to watch a little TV before I unwind and do my, uh, uh, my meditation before I go to bed. And it was a Dateline segment where a young college student who had never been in uh, trouble before had gotten his other uh, girlfriend from college pregnant. And he was not nearly as serious about her as she was about him. And he ended up, uh, it was a long segment, but he ended up killing her. And his parents at the end of the segment said, please, parents, reach out to your children and let them know there's nothing they can't talk to you about. There's nothing they can't come to you that's so horrific that you can't help them through. And they then also went on to send their prayers for the family of the the, the, the daughter that had died and been killed, that he killed because his life is never going to be the same. He's now in lifetime in prison and the young 20 some odd year old is dead. But they were talking about we thought we had a good relationship with our son. He had never been a problem before, but I don't know that they ever had this conversation that you just said about no matter how dark, how deep, get our undivided attention uh, because it may have just made that one little difference, that one little layer. So for parents that are listening in, for uh, brothers, sisters, mothers, whomever, that is this process you just took us through. It's it's four steps. Uh, and and it's, give me again the four steps, the questions will come, Mark, and then we're going to go to the next segment, but just so that we have the, the questions again or the, the topics. Okay. So the four prompts and do this when you're doing an exercise together or you're doing running an errand. Uh, the first one is uh, at, at its worst, how awful are you capable of feeling about your life for yourself? Okay. The second prompt is when you're feeling it, how alone do you feel when you're feeling it? The third prompt is take me to the last time you felt it. And, and you get them to describe it so clearly that you can see it because when you see it with your eyes, they feel it and they feel less alone. And then the fourth thing is you look them in the eye and you say, I, ha I have a request. Whenever you're feeling this way or heading down that road, I want you to do whatever it takes to get your mom or your dad or my undivided attention because there's nothing more important than are helping you feel less alone when you're feeling that awful. Well, wow, I love that. Well, and as much as that is very directed to, I, as I gave an experience uh, example here for uh, parents and children, this is steps that can be used with your mate, your partner, your brother, your sister, also in companies. This could be used with employees because how many times do employees go on to try and please the boss or to try and do something to, to don't get in trouble because they don't want the company to look bad? So having this kind of dialogue with humanity in general, I don't care who you are or what you're doing, this is a this four-step process. Uh, it seems um, something that you may not want to talk about in an employee situation or wherever, but I see this being very powerful to uncover the, the stuff that needs to happen on Connection World. So thank you for sharing that. Mark, are these some of the principles that you used in why the FBI was attracted to have you go in and be a hostage negotiator? How did that process go for you from you have, a am assuming, a successful practice, you're humming along in Los Angeles, you're seeing patients. How did it come about that you ended up with the FBI connection? And what were, and we've got about three or four minutes left in this segment, uh, but I wanted to find out how that even happened. How did that come about? And what were some of the things you did within the FBI? Well, what happened is 
there was a period for about 10 years where I was a guest lecturer at UCLA in a course called Death and Suicide. The teacher was one of my mentors, who was one of the top suicide prevention specialists in the world. He was the suicide prevention, what Marshall Goldsmith is to executive coaching. And I was a guest lecturer in his talk. And I would do this role play where, and there's actually a video of me doing it on YouTube, where uh, there'd be 300 undergraduates and I'd, uh, I'd take off my jacket uh, and I'd role play being a suicidal uh, young adult. And I pulled out a gun, held it to my neck and said, talk me out of it or else I'm going to uh, blow myself away. But don't worry, you can still get an A in the course. And nobody could talk me out of it. I pulled the trigger and then I told them what they should have told me. And then uh, I did that for 10 years. But how I got into doing FBI training, I was asked to give a talk to junior high parents uh, at, one, at a middle school in Los Angeles. And there was someone from the FBI talking and, and it was about how to keep your child safe as a teenager. So uh, for, so federal agent uh, uh, Brent Braun gave his talk. And I did a role play with the parents of teenagers, and my talk was called "It's My Party, and I'll Die If I Want To." Oh my gosh! And I played a teenager who got all A's and was going to go to a party where where the parent where I was telling all the parents, "You're not going to call the other parents uh, uh, because you've ruined my life," and and I just took them on, and uh, and the fellow from the FBI thought this was just fascinating. And then at the end, I didn't pull a gun. What I told to them, the parents, and imagine these are middle school parents, uh, pretty well-to-do parents. And I said, so let me get it. You really want what's best for me. You, uh, you want me to be happy. And if I do everything you tell me, my reward for doing that is I grow up and get to be as happy and well-adjusted as all of you are. <laughs> they just started laughing. And then I told them, this is how you could reach me if I'm your teenager going to a party where there'll be drugs, there'll be gang members, there'll be whatever. And then the FBI agent said, do you think you could do something with some of our FBI agents and police in hostage negotiation? So after after the break, I'll share uh, what I did and how I got into that. Wonderful. Well, I want to hear about that for sure. Well, it is amazing where one of these things that we do in our lives, whether you're an entrepreneur, you're an executive, you're a manager, you're a musician, you're an artist, whatever it might be, that our work, our talents, our skills, as we're finding our footing and we're going on our path, how it starts attracting other things on our path that lead to different roads, that lead to things that we never imagined. So I'm sure Mark, when he was sitting back thinking in that college room that there was a someone who believed in him that he would even finish his his medical degree to later on go to become a uh, involved in teaching uh, FBI negotiators or writing books. So we're going to come here more from that from Mark. Mark also has some insights on how we can think like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk. He also, if you're looking for investors, he has some input as well on how investors uh, and startups can, excuse me, how startups can find investors. So you're wondering, well, how could a psychiatrist or a uh, someone specialized in therapy know these things. Well, let's come back and find out more about not only the FBI, but Elon Musk uh, and uh, Steve Jobs, and also maybe finding money if you're looking for it. So thanks for listening in. We will be right back on the Alchemy of Business show. Hello, and welcome back to the Alchemy of Business show. Whether you are listening in on iTunes or Spotify, maybe you're watching us on E360 TV, however you got here, thanks again for being and listening in on the show. We are here with Dr. Mark Golston, and we were talking about not only his great successful path of being a psychiatrist, an author, uh, a speaker, but also uh, his life uh, when he was a FBI hostage negotiator, trainer, and teacher. Mark, you were getting ready to start telling us some of the stories that evolved within that process. So let's go on that. And then I want to throw in the Steve Jobs, Elon Musk comment that I made before we wrapped up the show that you have some insights on that as well. But let's start with the FBI. So so what happened is the, there was another there was an FBI agent and I presenting to a middle school uh, parent audience. And I started doing presentations to the FBI and police where I played one of their uh, 
one of their officers who was suicidal after he shot a kid with a plastic gun. So I would take off my suit jacket underneath. I would have a police uniform on and I would role play being a uh, either an FBI person or a police officer who had killed an unarmed teenager a year before. And they had to talk me out of killing myself. And I, I did that because uh, uh, if I wasn't one of them, they would just look to see if I was doing anything dangerous. And if I was doing anything dangerous with the gun, instead of holding it to my head, they would have just taken me out. So this forced them to have to empathize. But whatever they did, they still it didn't work. So I just pulled the trigger. And then I said, this is what you could have said to me that you didn't say that would have made me give you the gun. And then what happened is I started doing this at different venues. I did this at a federal penitentiary with prisoners. And I said, uh, and I played the younger brother of prisoners who were going to be released in the next year and a half. And, I, and it was how to earn back the trust from your family after you've really uh, screwed them over. And then I did presentation. I did a presentation to Goldman Sachs on Wall Street to the managing directors worldwide. And I played, I did a role play where I played a high net worth client from a competitor who had taken a, uh, uh, gotten a haircut and went from 150 million to 100, 100 million. And so I was thinking of switching from that firm to Goldman Sachs. And, and I challenged them. Why should I change to all of you? You all say the same things. And they uh, they all took the bait. Mm. And they all tried to convince me why I should switch to them. And at the end of it, instead of the gun or instead of the other role plays, I said, you know, I think I'm going to stick where I am or I'm going to go to a different place. And uh, you really disappointed me. And I said, this is what you could have asked me or told me or said to me that would have made me come over to you, but you didn't. And then, and that, and so what, what's common to everything I've done is being able to put myself into the other person's shoes, see the world through their eyes and their feelings and know what it would take to talk them out of it. Some years later, I was an advisor to the OJ Simpson trial to the prosecution. And I would sit in the courtroom and I could look at the court through the eyes of the jury, and I would present things to the prosecution, I'd say, you might want to do this if you want to win the jury over. And, and, uh, uh, and they kept me out of their strategy meeting because they said, you know, Mark, your point of view is so off the wall, but <laughs> some of it's really good. And uh, so, so, for instance, uh, in the O.J. Simpson trial, and the closing argument by Marsha Clark, I said, you know, if you want to have control over a jury when they go into deliberation, you need to haunt them. So make sure you play the famous 911 tapes of Nicole Brown Simpson talking about O.J. Simpson because you want to haunt the jury and leave that as an impression when they go into deliberation. But of course, they came back not guilty. And then I switched from that to now working with entrepreneurs about how do you win over uh, investors? And I've been working with an accelerator now for a year and a half. And every three months, I do a six-hour training for a cohort of about 25 companies. And one of the things I teach them is this is how you get through to, your, to investors. And one of the things they all like and they smile about is I say, when an investor smiles at you three minutes into your presentation, it's not a yes. They're smiling because they already know they don't want to give you their money. And they're smiling because they don't want you to catch them being rude, that they're done with you. And you're only into your 20 minute presentation, three minutes. Mm, and wow. so what I, what I coach them to do, if you're listening in and you've been there is when, and I said, they're not smiling at you because investors don't smile. It's about money. And if you haven't cracked a joke, which I wouldn't advise, they're smiling because they, they're being polite, but they're done with you. So the suggestion that I give to uh, startups is when you get that smile too soon in a conversation, drop the rest of your presentation. And instead, you say, can we pause for a moment? And they're going to go and you're going to disarm them. They're going to go, what? Yeah, can we pause for a moment? 
because when we started, we were even. You had money to give, and I was a company that needed that money. And now you have money to give, and I'm a company that's never going to see any of it. So you were listening for something, and I didn't cover it. Can you tell me what you were listening for that might have caused you to give me money? Uh, because we may have it. And if we have it, you know, we don't have to show you the rest of the deck. And by the way, if we don't have it, I'm in a cohort of 20 other companies. I might be able to introduce you to people that would be a good match for your investment. So you've taken an investor who is all ready to run away from you with their money and you focused on their success. And, and if you introduce them to other companies, uh, those people are going to be grateful to you. So by getting where other people are coming from, which has been my whole life, you have totally flipped the conversation. Well, that's powerful. And it makes me uh, think of quite a few things in what you just shared. But it does remind me that uh, communication used in any fashion, once you understand the art and the skill of communicating and then listening uh, and then being uh, a perceptive enough to shift and change can work in anything from whether it's in therapy, whether it is in writing, whether it's in speaking, whether it's in helping in negotiations and life and death situations, or in this case, raising money, because it is, you know, the, the, the humanity is, you know, very similar in itself. I mean, we all are human beings and we all have hot buttons that we hit and, and, and need to have uh, buttons pushed. So I love that you're using your, your psychology and psychiatry background in helping entrepreneurs now, because that is, uh, that is a skill and that's an art. And, it's, and if you can tap into people's heart and mind and finding out what makes them tick, what they need, what they want, that's the same as you helping Nancy find her reason to live. You're helping these entrepreneurs find ways that investors should believe in them and uh, throw them a lifeline. So I love that. What are some of the things that you, when you were uh, in your show notes, we were talking about, um, you obviously have, as a psychiatrist, you probably can uh, fairly quickly self-analyze uh, or analyze people. So Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, some of these names that people think of that are you know, top-notch serial entrepreneurs, and there's many more in the world, and there's some that we don't know that are probably equally as talented. But what what, what is it that you uh, want to share about that those type gentlemen and women? Yeah, yeah. For a year and a half, I did a one-man show called Steve Jobs with and I played Steve Jobs coming back to Apple from 1997 to 2007 when they released the iPhone. Uh, so, so, you know, I learned my, I guess I have this dramatic side that I learned by doing those presentations to the FBI. And what I learned is I, I learned to see the world through the eyes of Steve Jobs and the eyes of uh, Elon Musk. And, and here is some insight into visionary thinking. Uh, one of the things that they have in common and most visionaries have is they see the unknown as an adventure to be lived, whereas the majority of people see the unknown as a danger to be avoided. Mm, yeah, I love that. And also, they also spontaneously, if you think of Steve Jobs and Elon Musk, they have the capacity to go from divergent thinking to convergent thinking seamlessly. So it's like a Prius going from electric to gas. And, and in fact, people like Elon Musk and even Steve Jobs, one of the reasons they like drugs and psychedelics is because they're such control freaks. They sometimes need help with their divergent thinking because they know that when they just look out in the world, the world will reveal things that the world needs. Mm. And their convergent thinking causes them to be able to then bring it back into a product that the world will want. Whereas the majority of people, as I said, see the unknown as something that's uh, 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 intimidating. I love that. Well, we only have about three or four minutes left in the show. And let's talk about this convergent thinking and the power of the unknown. So one of the things on the alchemy of business, the reason I picked the name for the name alchemy for my company, which is called Alchemy Advisors, I love the word itself. I just like how it sounds, alchemy. And it represents transition and transmutation and changing and, you know, in some cases led to gold in the, in the ancient myths of alchemists. But also in the 
the the book that I wrote last year called The Iggy Principles. It's, a, it's a, about inviting in the unknown, uh, the spiritual realm of the unknown energy that exists in, in the universe. And the Iggy moments are the opposite of what uh, you talk about Elon Musk and Steve Jobs and many, uh, all of us as humans all have egos. But Wayne Dyer, which is also a psychiatrist, spoke many times about the ego and that it was edging good out. Or it was edging God out when you're fully in your ego. And the, I had to remind myself as a young man growing up corporate ladder, what is the opposite of that? Or what's the uh, alternative of that? And that is inviting good in or inviting greatness in or inviting God in. So I'm curious, Mark, on all this exploration you've had on your own uh, searching the unknown, searching your own internal uh, quest from a young man going through depression to then greatness and following your path and uh, studying people and studying humanity. What is your definition at this stage of your life of spirituality or a spiritual presence in 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 a general general state? And then how do you, for your own life, uh, describe spirituality? And if so, uh, if you use it in a full practice, how do you incorporate that into your life or business? So I'll leave you with a quote and an exercise, which I think is a good way to uh, to to finish our uh, our episode. Uh, one of my favorite quotes comes from a British psychoanalyst named Wilfred Bion, and he said, "Listening is the purest form of listening is to listen without memory or desire, because when you listen with memory, you have an old agenda that you're trying to plug people into. When mm. you listen with desire, you have a present agenda that you're trying to plug them into." but it's not their agenda. And one of the ways you can build this muscle to be able to listen without memory or desire is something that I call the HUVA exercise. And you can look up H-U-V-A exercise, Goulston, you'll find it. Uh, and it can help all of us. And what HUVA stands for is once a day, and if you do this for a week, it will change your life. Once a day, select one conversation where you want to be present as opposed to transactional, where where the other person, you want the other person to leave feeling satisfied or, or and fulfilled. And what Hoover stands for is you have the intention to use it in a conversation. And after the conversation, you rate yourself as if you were the other person. On a scale of one to 10, how much do you think they felt you heard them out? versus interrupting them, versus changing the subject. Uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much did they feel understood by you? And you show that by saying, can you say a little bit more about that? Can you go a little bit deeper? So that shows understanding. On a scale of 1 to 10, how much did they feel valued by you? You know, Did you pause and, and actually take in what they had to say and actually see how it could be applied in other settings? You've done an amazing job of those with me. I mean, because you've summarized what I've been talking about. This is unscripted and you were able to select things and see the value of it. And the final A is on a scale of one to 10, how much did they feel that you added value to what they had to say? So how much did they feel heard out, understood, valued, and that you added value? And the way you add value is, and you've been doing it all through the episode, you'll pause, you'll summarize what I've been speaking about, and then you'll see the application of it, not only to what I was talking about, but the further further application of it to people's professions and their lives. So you've done a pretty good job of a hoovering. Well, thank you for that. Well, it seems to me like if I had to do my own assessment of, I thank you for that very much. If I was playing dime store psychologist, which I'm not, to me, my looking at Mr. Doc, Dr. Mark Golston is your spiritual gift of the unknown is helping people really tap into the essence of who they are and finding ways to have that be heard in the world in an empathetic way. And so the surgical empathy, I love that you have your techniques and your skills and your process of you emulating uh, a, a beacon of the importance of an individual, the importance of someone's psyche, the importance of mental health, but also how adaptable that is in life. And that's a musical gift in a way. It's, it, feels like a, it feels like a song and a dance of interaction with this energy that flows in connecting people to listen, whether you're an investor, whether you're a negotiation and a hostage thing, whether you're Nancy across from your table. So to me, I think the spiritual energy, which again, my definition of, of God is just the sum of all that is. It's energy and it's the sum of all that is working through us as human beings. So I want to thank you, Mr. Mark Golston, Dr. Mark, Dr. Mark Golston, for having this energy 
flow in a way that your gift of having people be heard and that you just listen, as your book says behind you, and that you're helping the world just listen, because we can also use more of that. Those are some great gifts that we can all take more from. So thank you very much for your time, your wisdom, and your guidance today. We really appreciate you being on the show. Uh, and we're, what's the best way for people to reach out to you, Mark? We're going to have that in the show notes. But if people are listening in right now and they wanted to find you on your website or social media, what's the best way for people to connect with you? I would say LinkedIn. I keep pretty current. Or uh, my website is markgoulston.com. Or my podcast, which is kind of exploding. I mean that in a positive way, is my wake-up call. So I think uh, those three ways of reaching me, and I would love to hear from you, uh, will be a good way to find me. Great. Well, we're going to have Dr. Mark, Dr. Mark Golston's info on the show notes. We'll have his Instagram, his website. So uh, we will make sure those are there. We'll also have link. He has some amazing things that he does on his social sites, on things that you can do, various exercises, worksheets, et cetera. So please check him out. Mark, again, thank you for being on the show. Any closing words for our guests before we sign off? Well, I'm going to share, we didn't talk about this, but I collect quotes. So I'm going to leave you with the best quote that I have heard. And I collect some doozies. Uh, I shared one that was pretty good about memory and desire. But here's one that you can take and it's worth thinking about. It's about forgiveness. Forgiveness is accepting the apology you will never receive. Mm, I love that. And that is a, a great note to end on. That's one of the chapters in my book uh, on forgiveness. That's one of, for me personally, that I've learned the power of forgiveness is one of the greatest gifts and lessons and things that I practice all the time in my life. Uh, and it's where I've been the most rewarded internally in my soul uh, and in my interactions with others. So let's end on the power of the note of just listening, communication and forgiveness. And we will be back again on the Alchemy of Business show where we are helping people make wiser decisions, create greater profits in your life and in your businesses, and finding higher purpose, which our guest for sure has helped us do today. So thank you again, Mark. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of The Alchemy of Business with your host, Steve Rogers. If you found value in today's broadcast, please consider liking, subscribing, sharing with friends, and leaving a review. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next Thursday for another episode. Be blessed and see you soon.